I absolutely in my twenties, I would, nothing's wrong. I don't ask for help. Um, and my own mental health struggle after the stroke was the same, which is what caused the issue. Right. So people would want to help me. And I'd be like, no, everything's fine. Meanwhile, I'm like crying in the middle of the night, yelling at my husband for leaving a light on like just, you know, ridiculous things that I realize are really important cursors to recognizing that I don't have any control over the situation. And rather than trying to grab arbitrary control to give my the false sense of security, I actually need to accept I don't have control and let it go. Hey, I'm Jordan Harding. I grew up watching my dad put on that suit and tie every morning and go out to successfully climb the corporate ladder. I thought I wanted to be him, but I was wrong. I needed to be me. To do that, I had conversations with incredible people to learn how they figured out this whole thing called life. I learned how they overcome adversity and pick themselves up when they've been knocked down. Now, I'm sharing those discussions with you so you can apply those same learnings to your life. Welcome to It's Not a Straight Line. So today on It's Not a Straight Line, we have Jennifer Noons. You are a clinic director, a registered social worker with, I think, over 10 years of experience providing holistic, client-centered care to individuals and families experiencing challenges across the life course. Um, when an experience, a person experiences a challenge or transition, I see that you speak a lot about how, you know, it affects the whole family dynamic. And I'm really interested to dig into that. Um, you know, shout out to our mutual friend, Jennifer Heeks for making the introduction. Yeah. Jen, I know you've been through a lot, um, w- with both family and both career, uh, you know, my, my friend, Jen described you, Jen is an amazing wife, a mother of two, an entrepreneur, an amazing daughter, an amazing sister, and somebody who just seems to keep it all under control. I'm sure behind the scenes, maybe it's all not like that, (laughs) but I'm super excited uh, for you to be, be on the show. So thanks for being here. Thanks. And I think I probably owe Jen a dinner for that, that information she passed along. That was really kind. Jennifer, you have your own business. You're an entrepreneur. Why don't you tell me a little bit about it and and what you call it uh, and the service you provide to other people? Sure. So I um, graduated from my master's of social work back in 2012. And I started working originally actually in clinical hospital settings, which I kind of quickly learned wasn't for me and moved into community mental health and then school-based social work for many years. And then after uh, the birth of my son, we'll get into what happened after that. I had to extend my maternity leave and I decided I really needed the flexibility to be able to just take care of my family and do all of that. But I love the work that I do. I really feel like clinical therapy is for me a vocation. I feel so privileged to be able to walk alongside people when they're going through some really vulnerable and challenging times of their life. And if I can help them to discover, because I don't do the discovery, they do the discovery, but if I can help them, you know, pivot their mindset or discover the strength that they didn't realize was within themselves all along, um, to me, that's such a great privilege. And so to be able to do that in a way that felt meaningful to me, I started Jay Noon's counseling originally in 2019. And then uh, just last month, I, or was it, earlier this month, maybe, um, launched Nourished Soul Therapy. So that's going to be hopefully a collective of therapists with like mind. And really our goal is to help people nourish their souls, to heal their minds so that they can love their life. Cause that's really what it's about, right? Loving your life. So I, I think you went to McMaster and you have, you have twice. some twice <laughs> you went to McMaster and you have 
Do you have two or three degrees? I have three degrees because I really like school. (laughs) Okay. We love school here. What did you think going through school? You were in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Did you think this was the work you were going to get into? No. And it's a little bit silly. So I didn't even think I was going to go to McMaster. I was, that was the bottom of my list of choices. I think for OUAC, you have like up to five for the amount that you spent. This is back in, you know, the arc ages when I went to university and I thought I was going to study forensic psychology or journalism in Ottawa. That was always the plan. I was going to do that. And then my dad was doing his master's part-time. My dad's an educator. He was a teacher doing his MED. And he said, just come and look at the campus. I'm not going to say you have to go there, but just come and look at it. And as soon as I got out of the car, I was kind of like, crap, this is really nice. And it just had that vibe where it felt like home. And I originally applied for communications. I changed my major to gerontology, which is basically the sociology of aging. So studying um, how our life course changes throughout time and what happens to us psychologically and sociologically as we age and social policies and things like that. Um, That was my first degree. And then I started working for the government as a statistician. And I very quickly realized that that was not for me. I am meant to be working with people. And so I went back to school. And the funniest thing about why I'm embarrassed to say it, but it's so true. I was watching um, an old television show, ER, if you've ever heard of this. Yeah, ER, yeah. Uh, Season 10, they introduce a character in the emergency room who's a social worker. And she's like empathetic and she's listening to these patients and truly being a voice for them in their like greatest time of vulnerability. And even though on the show, she's like dismissed and underpaid and all of this stuff, I looked at what she was doing and I went that that's that I want to do that. I want to be that voice for people and I want to help people. I always knew I wanted to help people, but I didn't know how. And I went back and did my BSW as a second degree. And then I did my master's at U of T uh, in social work as well. So BSW, Bachelor of Social Work, right? Yes. Is that what it is? Okay. And what do you think made you, like, what was the foundation? Was it something to do with your parents, your upbringing? What made you want to help people instead of say, like, I want to go work at this thing that's going to make me a whole bunch of money? That's a good question. I think I, people would probably describe me as maternal as a child. So like in high school, my nickname was mom. Ah. Um, this would be what people would call me. So, you know, I'd be holding my friend's hair when they were getting sick, like that kind of thing. Um, and my mom had breast cancer when I was 13 and seeing what she went through, not that I was a caregiver for her at all, but she had to actually, at that time, we didn't have the regional cancer centers that we have now. So for her radiation, because her treatment, um, was chemo surgery, chemo and radiation, they had a four month wait list and her oncologist said, you're you know, your cancer's too aggressive. You can't do that. And so she had to leave. So she went to Buffalo for eight weeks. And so that time in my life, I think was when I started to take on a bit more of a, a role around the house, perhaps with responsibilities. Uh, and I saw the care that she got. And I, I was, you know, around the medical um, system at a young age, full disclosure. I also broke my arm five times in four years mm-hmm. as a child. So I've been around, um, medical settings a lot. And it's always felt familiar to me. I know people hate hospitals. They don't like the smell. Nobody wants to go there. And yet it felt very natural that I would be a part of some paramedical or medical field at some point. Uh, And I think that's just part of my, my experience as a child. And so, and what was your original bachelor's in? Gerontology and health studies. So gerontology, health studies, 
so bachelor of social work and then your master's was in social work as well yes yeah Yeah. and and what is the main difference and is there much of a difference between uh like therapist psychologist or psychotherapist i think can prescribe drugs and a social worker so i so a bit different so psychiatrist is an md they can prescribe medication a uh, PhD psychologist can diagnose, although I know there is some work being done with our association of social workers that are trying to work towards allowing social workers to do that. That's This is years down the road. I know in Nova Scotia, it's already been established, I think, in British Columbia as well. And psychotherapist is actually a term that uh, I do utilize. So I'm a social worker. I'm a registered social worker and psychotherapist. But there is a college now, which is fairly new, which is the College of Registered Psychotherapists. So you can have multiple different degrees, but if you practice the controlled act of psychotherapy, which is really talk therapy, so, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, emotion focused therapy, all those kind of fall under that umbrella, um, you can identify as an RP or a registered psychotherapist if you're registered with that college. I'm not, I'm registered with the College of Social Workers, so I am a registered social worker and psychotherapist. So there's that delineation between the two, but only psychiatrists can actually um prescribe medication and PhD psychologists can diagnose well and psychiatrists can diagnose too yeah interesting okay well yeah. thank you lots for of that. overlap though lots of overlap and so Jen what what kind of you know pushed you to want to be an entrepreneur in this space you've just created this new concept this new business where you want to have other social workers part of it right so what was the jump for you to do that as opposed to like what would the other routes have been would have been being more clinical like you started in yeah so i still i'll still see clients i think forever because i yeah. love that work and that piece of my work the reason i wanted to grow this way is because i'm in a place in my career where i'm constantly learning i don't think i'll ever i mean i think if we really are taking in knowledge it's that we understand the more we know the more we don't know and so I thought if we could get a, an independent um, or a group of like a professional collective of these minds of people with you know, sort of a common goal, which is to help people, I can provide clinical supervision and utilize the skill set that I have from, you know, trainings and different modalities to help other clinicians grow their own passion and perhaps find a pathway for them. But really, ultimately, the reason is to help more people. <laughs> it's just to get more people through the door. And the reason I opened private practice in the first place as a solo practitioner was because I saw a massive gap in what was mm. being offered for people, in particular for parents. And so I started to, that's why I started Jane Nunes Counseling in the beginning. And so now it's just kind of flourished. And I also recognize overwhelm pretty quickly in myself now with a lot of work that I've done. So knowing that and knowing I want to grow and be able to help more, I need more hands on deck. And is that, so you notice overwhelm within yourself and other people or mainly with other people? Like, is it both? I used to notice it more with other people through my own journey. I've now noticed it more in myself and I'm, I'm pretty sensitive to my own body. And so my own anxiety, when it flares, I've gotten very good at identifying that. And I've had my own um, journey with anxiety and I have my own therapist and, you know, do that work because I think it's really important to be authentic and to live my own truth and recognize that takes a lot of strength to say that we need help. And that's important. So I like to practice what I preach. Um, but I think I'm now pretty able to recognize it in both. I miss it sometimes because I'm human, but 
And so, yeah, and we're, we're all human and no matter how mm-hmm. tough we are, we always go through things that are going to challenge us and hit us hard. And, totally. and I know Jennifer, you know, one of the reasons, you know, it's not a straight line in the podcast is just understanding that we're going to have those challenges. We have to figure out a way through, right. Cause the only mm-hmm. way forward is taking another step, doing what we can do Totally. In your life. I know with, I think it was your first birth, um, there was something very unexpected that happened. And I want to speak through that. And I'd like to, you know, understand then some of the things you you learned and that you can pass on, and that you, you have now educated yourself on. So do you mind talking a little bit about what happened and kind of yeah. what what changed your life? Sure. So it's my son, my second child. So I had my daughter in 2015. And I experienced postpartum mood disorder in the form of anxiety after that. And after about six months, things got, um, you know, found a groove. I I was feeling more like myself again. I was very lucky. And then uh, we had another child 2017 in June, and I was waiting for that anxiety to hit. And it never did. It was just a completely different experience. I think I was a more seasoned parent. My son was very chill. He still kind of is. And so we coasted through those first six months and I was very, I mean, we had some challenges with breastfeeding and milk supply and things like that. And then, uh, the morning of January 26, 2018, he was seven and a half months. He didn't really wake up. And so I went to wake him up because he had woken up in the middle of the night crying. We thought it was his teething. Um, but it just sounded different. And I, you know, I'm talking to my husband that night and I was four o'clock in the morning. We're just, you know, doing the bounce and like walking around and trying to get him to calm down. I tried nursing. I tried a bottle. None of that was working. Tried Motrin. And, um, finally he settled, but I remember saying to my husband, if he doesn't stop crying within a certain window of time, I just remembered reading something online saying, you know, if a baby cries for like two hours and their fed changed, whatever, take him to the hospital. And I said that to my husband, well, at like an hour and 30 minutes, he falls asleep. And so, I let him sleep. And then around it was maybe 830 in the morning, I was sitting with my daughter watching Peppa Pig, which if anyone has toddlers, this is a very popular show. And I just said, he shouldn't still be sleeping like something's going on. And so I went into the room and tried to wake him up. And he was like very lethargic. His breathing pattern changed as soon as he woke up. And, um, you know, I ended up calling the doctor because my own anxiety started to flare immediately, obviously. And thank God for that uh, secretary in the doctor's office. She said, just take him to emerge, like just take him to emerge right away. So I called 911 because I at that point was shaking and like not able to drive. They were there very quickly. I was actually put on hold when I called 911, which is a scary, scary thing when no one's there to answer the phone. And um, we went to our local hospital within probably 25 minutes of being there. We were being rushed for a CT scan. And they said, you know, with decreased level of consciousness and the, the symptoms that he was having, they said it's either seizures, meningitis, or a stroke. So we've started him on antibiotics and we're going to do a CT scan with contrast. You know, here's the risks and benefits. Blah, blah, blah. I just said, do what you have to do. Do what you have to do. Um, and I went to put him onto the stretcher and I could see a facial droop. And I worked in stroke for about a year. I did weekends at a, on a stroke unit in the hospital and that's, that facial droop wasn't there like five minutes before. And so I was like, I kind of knew it was a stroke before they did the CT. Um, but it was, it was an ischemic stroke in the uh, middle cerebral artery on the right side of the brain. And my life exploded that day. That was how it started. And so, so that was almost, is it five years ago now? Four and a half. So just four over and four and a half, half years yeah. ago. What's your son's name, by the way? Dominic. Dominic. And yeah. and how's Dominic doing today? He's doing well today. It has been 
journey is like an understatement. I think yeah. when we think of talk about it's not a straight line, like his line has not been linear whatsoever, but he's in senior kindergarten. He is walking and talking and making friends and he's learned to jump this past summer. And he is uh, just like the light in, in our lives, him and my daughter both are just such beautiful souls. And so uh, we're very grateful that not only is he alive, he's thriving. And so I'm really, we're really proud. I mean, I'm biased, obviously, but uh, yeah, no, things are good, but things weren't always good. And sometimes it's important to admit that. And we've been through a lot with him and it's, I'm so grateful that he was a baby and doesn't remember those things. How long did the period last when it was like pretty touch and go? Like this sounds like it would have been a, was it a life-threatening thing at the time? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. So for the first 72 hours, so the first words out of my mouth, um, when they said it was a stroke were literally, are we going to sick kids immediately? There was like no pause. And they said, yes, there's a stroke team at sick kids. They're already on their way to get you. And so there was some talk about whether we'd have to be flown in because we're in Mississauga. So whether they needed the chopper, but it was the middle of the morning. So they said traffic should be fine, blah, blah, blah. And they called it a scoop and run, which Mm. tells me it's severe or whatever. I knew it was serious immediately because there was, I mean, we've all were aware of the healthcare system in Ontario and there was no wait. So we Mm. got in there. I saw a pediatrician within five minutes. He had that CT scan within half an hour. He was diagnosed within an hour. I went, this isn't, this is not good. Uh, And when we got to sick kids, he had an MRI to just find out more, more detail about the stroke. And I wrote this, this is in the book I wrote about this journey. And I had said to my husband, like, I used to run those meetings. So we'd have family meetings at the hospital when we'd have to give really bad news, basically about trajectory. And it was like five o'clock on a Friday and the doctor and the nurse practitioner called my husband and I to join them in a room. And as we're walking down the hall, I just remember looking to my husband and being like, this isn't good this isn't mm. good. You need to prepare. Like, this is not a good thing. And they told us, um, if we, if he was an adult, uh, likely would have died. Uh, and he's a baby. So that's a good thing. You know, neuroplasticity is a good thing, but it really depends on what happens in the next 72 hours. And so they kept talking about make it to Monday. It, you know, once we get to Monday, we can do this. And nobody talked about after Monday. And I sat in that meeting and I said, you know, my husband was crying beside me and I looked at her, the doctor, and I said, listen, I'm in shock. My husband's in shock. I probably don't even understand the severity of the situation right now. I'm definitely in crisis social work mom mode right now. Should I be end of life planning for my child? And she looked at me and said, I wish I could tell you one way or the other, but I can't. We just have to wait and see it's hour to hour. And those were the longest 72 hours of my life. Uh, and he made it, which is great. And then we we got where we are and things got a lot better. And then 2020 happened and things got a lot worse. And then things got a lot better again. And here we are in 2022. So um, I don't know how much detail to go into, but it was um, it was touch and go for those 72 hours. And the thing with stroke protocol too, for babies, you can't hold them. They have to lie flat. Mm. So um, it's very hard for a mother of a child that's also being nursed. So like, there's a lot of skin to skin contact that first year with, with parents mm-hmm. um, just to watch him with like tubes everywhere and not be able to hold him. So that was really challenging, but we got through it and I kept saying, we're going to be okay. Even if this is not okay. And I said it until I believed it. Cause I absolutely did not believe it at first. And I am struck by, you know, your ability to just say to your husband, prepare, like that's, it's pretty wild that you were able to say that in that moment. Yeah, I what think you were I, going through. You know, it's funny you say that. As I'm as I'm reflecting 
you know, it's all a blur now. I kept, mm -hmm. I keep a journal. I've been journaling since I was six years old. And so mm. I knew pretty quickly in that experience to start writing stuff down because I probably wasn't going to remember what mm. was happening. And as I'm editing and looking back at the things that I've written, it actually is a little bit surprising because I don't remember having that strength, but I think that happens in all of us, right? We don't realize the strength that we have until we have to use it. And so I also had in fairness, like this is part of my training, right? I do crisis response. I do crisis intervention work. So I had the benefit of some familiarity, which, you know, to my husband's credit, he's an electrician. Like he would have, he didn't know the jargon. He didn't know the, the environment. This was a very different scene for him. And so I think in saying that, um, I, I think part of that was maybe to my detriment because I knew too much, mm, yeah. uh, but also to my advantage, because I had the opportunity to be engaged in these conversations in a deeper way. And I knew to ask questions, right? Part of my job is to advocate for clients. Well, now what, what bigger, deeper connection could I possibly have? It's my son right now. It's my life. Yeah. And I can't even imagine, right. I'm not a, a father. I'm not, would not be a, a mother. So I'm going to ask you some questions and just sure. for me and the listener, you know, I, I have no idea what, what I would be thinking. Cause I can't, can't imagine it, but um, you know, I do wonder, like, did your training, your educational and career background, did they, do you think that helped you maintain some, you were in shock of course, but mm -hmm. did it help you at all? Like maintain some type of calmness or, 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 or is it just like you go to the mother, like you probably had both of your brains working, right? The mother yeah. brain as well as, yeah. Yeah. I would say, thing. yes, it did. Um, I've always been, um, a goal oriented individual. And so I've always been a bit more on the, I'm a glass half full mm -hmm. person. Yeah. Okay most of the time. And so I think that was to my benefit personally, to be able to go through this, like even to say something like this is going to be okay, even if it's not okay. I mean, I don't know that I would say that if I wasn't having had experiences professionally, seeing people go through crises and knowing that life goes on, like life happens. And, you know, I worked in palliative medicine for a short mm -hmm. time. So mm -hmm. seeing that, you know, it changes you, I think a little bit. So I do think it helped me because I had the crisis response training, what it didn't help with was I did not process my emotions for okay. months, okay. For months. Cause I went right into doer mode. Right. I was yeah. like, okay, got to make a list. I got to delegate. I, I was like, called my mom. Okay. Get Steven, my brother to leave work, to pick up Paul, to bring him to the hospital. Cause Paul shouldn't drive. Cause he's in shock. Like I did all of this stuff while sitting in emerge, waiting for sick kids to come and pick us up and then had to call parents, like my in-laws and my parents to tell them what was happening. Mm -hmm. Like it's, I, it's not funny. I'm laughing because I think back going, what was I thinking? Why did I do all that stuff? But well, because you probably had no natural. choice. Right? I had no choice. You were and, pushed into action. Yeah. And I think too, it's, you're so helpless. I can't make this better for my child. I need to do something to feel purpose and to feel like I'm helping in some way, even if it's like minuscule or not really important. And so that was what, what propelled me to do it. And 2020, you said was relatively challenging. Did I assume the pandemic made it more challenging, but were there other things like, was it a, a tough year for, for Dominic or was it mainly the pandemic that made it challenging? Um, so I will uh, hold on to your seat here because it does change a bit. So in 2020, so I should preface this 
after his stroke, the same day he started having seizures, which is very, a very common side effect to pediatric stroke because there's trauma in the brain, irritated tissue around it. So, you know, they try to send a message and you get like a, a zap, so to speak, electrically. This is not, I'm not explaining this neurologically uh, in a good way, but so um, he was hooked up to a 24 hour EEG monitor for several days, and then they were able to get it controlled with medication and he was stable. Um, until his first birthday. And they started to titrate him off the meds, hoping that he would outgrow the epilepsy. Um, within a month and a half of that in 2018, they had to put him back on a different medication because it wasn't working. And then it was stable. So from 2018 to 2020, we didn't see anything. We didn't even change the dose and he had been growing. So Paul and I were, my husband's Paul, having um, feeling pretty optimistic that maybe he would outgrow this and that would be best case scenario. So then we go into lockdown in March, 2020. And at this point, I'm working part-time private practice, part-time school social worker. So I'm working from home with my two kids. My daughter's in kindergarten and my husband's an essential worker, so he leaves home. And in April, probably a month after we started lockdown, um, my son had what looked like a muscle spasm, but I very quickly realized that looked like a seizure to me. And so I connected with uh, sick kids. We had a follow-up. They said, oh, you know monitor, right? Try to get it on video, which anyone that deals with epilepsy knows that's, it, it sounds weird to other people, but you always need to get stuff on video to show the neurologist what's happening. And within a month of those start that one, you know, muscle spasm, he was having like dozens of seizures in a day and nothing was working. Like we tried so many medicines. We did video EEGs. We went into sick kids. And so every time they try a new medication and it fails, we were told he's one step closer to surgery. And the surgery for my son, because of the size of his stroke was called a functional hemispherectomy. Um, so they actually had to detach half of his brain. So wow. anything that was left on that side that was affected by the stroke would have to be rendered unusable because the problem was the seizures were starting in the traumatized area where the stroke was, and it was impacting that entire side of his brain. And if it goes untreated, it can move over to the other side. And so to salvage what he had, um, we had to make that decision, which was unanimously supported by his medical team, but it was the hardest decision we've ever had to make in our life. And then November 4th, 2020, he had a surgery at SickKids and uh, knock on whatever my head, um, <laughs> he's been seizure-free ever since. And he's thriving, which is great, but it was the darkest, like probably worse than the stroke, to be honest with you, because we had already been through a marathon. So then to think we got to do this again and kind of see it coming uh, was scary. Wow. That's, that's just incredible. And I'm so, so happy to hear um, he's thriving. You know, spoke about a decision there. It was the hardest decision of your life. You've had to make some pretty, pretty incredible decisions. A lot of us and mothers listening to this wouldn't even dream of. And I hope they never do. Yeah. And I guess you can't compare it to other decisions you make in life because those are just totally on a different spectrum. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I've had a lot of people on this podcast to talk about their decision making or how they weigh things like, how do you do it? Or how, how the heck do you even... Like, is it just like you're listening to the medical professionals, you're having a conversation with your husbands and you're trying to figure out what way to go? Like, how, how, how do you even make a decision like that? Yeah, we sought out, of course, sought out all the, the medical advice from his team at SickKids and they were incredible and did all the testing, preliminary testing. It came down to quality over quantity. Mm, yeah. Right. I mean, his, his development essentially stalled. The poor kid was exhausted. He would have a seizure 
you know, at one point it was 25, 30 a day that I could mm. see. Right. And then there's subclinical ones that I can't see. So what quality of life is that for him? What quality of life is that for my daughter? Who's being like, let's be honest, completely neglected because I can't spend any time with her. I have to constantly be at arm's length uh, from my son. And we had talked about the realities of the surgery. What, for example, um, when you detach half the brain, you lose half your sight, obviously, mm. because the occipital lobe gets cut in half. So knowing this, we were told by the surgeon, like, he'll never drive. He'll mm. never be able to get a license. Yeah. This has been a really difficult thing for my husband, who's a huge car guy. Okay. Right. So this is, you know, that type of stuff. And my rationale to that was, well, if you're actively seizing every day, you can't drive either. That's right. And so I would rather have other benefits in life. Like it was weighing those types of things, right? Like I'm thinking, you know, people can live independently and be on their own and healthy and happy with, with disability. And frankly, he already had disabilities from his stroke. So it was all, it was more so the quality, like, what is he going to get out of this? Is he going to be able to flourish? And the, in fairness, the um, prognosis for hemispherectomy post-stroke is quite good in, in achieving seizure freedom. I think we were told between 80 and 90%. Mm -hmm. uh, once he reaches 10 years post-surgery, he'll be considered cured of epilepsy, uh, which is incredible. And once we pass the November mark of this year, the, the, the significance of the risk goes down. So, I mean, it was a decision, but it didn't really feel like a decision because we yeah. thought, what else are we going to do? Like he's going to shorten his life significantly and live it with very little quality if we don't do this for him. And I thought we have to take the risk. We have to try what we can. I wouldn't, I don't know that I'd be able to live with myself if I didn't try to give him the best life possible. And I applaud you for that. Um, you know, as, as tragic as, as this has all been, it sounds like, you know, as you said, he's, he's doing really well. I use the word thriving. I really want to understand now you're, you're going to become an author and I'm smiling yeah. a bit on this end. And so oh, I really want to know, like, what is going to be the name of the book and what's it going to be about? Cause I think you said March, 2023. And yeah, I think it's incredible. And I'd like to talk a little bit about now, like you've had this happen to you and you probably wish it never did. Right. But then I'm sure there's another part of you that's going to have all these ha things happening now and you can help so many people. Mm -hmm. So there's probably a part of you that's like, this is just who I am now. Yeah. So I wrote a book about this journey. What happened after Dominic's stroke, I actually went looking for a book to read to see if I could just get a sense of camaraderie, some hope, some inspiration, didn't exist. I mean, I read stroke of insight, but that's a very different about an adult that has a stroke and all of that stuff. And I said, I need to make sense of why this happened. We don't have a medical reason why he had a stroke. It was considered a medical fluke to have this massive blood clot. And so I said, if I can't make sense of why this happened, then maybe I can use this experience that I've had to help someone else. And, you know, the reality is I help one person at a time in my office. And so if I can write a book and it can get into the hands of as many people as possible who could potentially benefit from it and realize their own strength or realize their own resilience or realize that, you know, I, I don't mean to swear, but like things can be really shitty and also be full of joy, you know, at the same time, uh, if I can do that, then it's worth it. Right. Then I'll tell my story. I don't care. Like I'll be vulnerable. That's fine. I'm a pretty open book, obviously, as I, as I share the story. So were you always was, like that, Jennifer? Uh, like, were you it always... was always an open book. I think yeah. I'm uh... like you, you were okay with vulnerability. Cause I realize as yeah. I get older, it's something that I've become more comfortable with, but before I wasn't definitely comfortable with it. 
I'm definitely in your camp that there for sure. I think we all grow up with it. And, and this is our upbringing too, right? This is intergenerational stuff where we're taught like stoic and strong and non-emotional is strength. And the reality is actually quite the opposite. It's when we get in touch and be really the, the truth is we have to be honest with ourselves. We can't be self-aware. We can't grow if we're not honest with what we're feeling. And so if we don't lean into that, then that's doing us such a disadvantage. And frankly, it's a mask which is a crutch, right? So the more honest and authentic we can be, which means vulnerability and emotions and recognizing when we need to take a step back or, you know, I say, you know, sometimes we got to slow down in order to speed up. I, I was saying, and recognizing that to me, that's strength, right? It's asking for help. It's recognizing there's an issue or that something needs to change. And I, I think I'll constantly be growing, but I think the vulnerability, I, I absolutely in my twenties, I would, nothing's wrong. I don't ask for help. Um, and my own mental health struggle after the stroke was the same, which is what caused the issue. Right. So people would want to help me. And I'd be like, no, everything's fine. Meanwhile, I'm like crying in the middle of the night, yelling at my husband for leaving a light on like just, you know, ridiculous things that I realize are really important cursors to recognizing that I don't have any control over the situation. And rather than trying to grab arbitrary control to give my the false sense of security, I actually need to accept I don't have control and let it go. So that's a big, I think that's a big change. I'm a different person now than I was five years ago in a good way. Yeah. yeah I was going to say yeah. in a good way. I didn't know if the right word was in a better way or it's just a good way. So yeah. what it, can you share the name of the book or when it, Oh, might sorry. That's yeah, okay. making, it, uh, making it to Monday, making it to Monday. Mm -hmm. And that's incredibly powerful because of how you explained it, making it to Monday before. Yeah. It's got two meanings. Yeah, so go making ahead. it to Monday because of that. Absolutely. We had to make it to Monday, but it was also the idea that I hear a lot of, I just need to get to this point, right? Once I get to this end point or this result, I can start to enjoy my life. Or once I am successful, I will be happy. And what we know with positive psychology is the inverse is true, right? Once we just accept and enjoy where we are right now and, and really focus on the effort, not the output. So really at the starting line versus the ending line, this is where joy lives and this is where happiness lives. And so to me, in my mind, making it to Monday was just like, start, just starting. And so that was where that, um, that title came from, but certainly has a, has a dual meaning for me, given the experience. That's incredible. And if you didn't go back, you should check out, uh, I had my friend Alexis Dean on, who's an entrepreneur as well. And she runs a, a community of female entrepreneurs that you might fit into. And oh, okay. she runs a few cool camps. But her biggest learning, she traveled for 12 years in her 20s, like everywhere. And she thought the next trip, the next country, the next job, the next business she started would lead to happiness. And what she realized was happiness was within her when she stopped looking for it. A hundred percent. And choosing it. Like we have to choose joy every day. Right. So making it to Monday, when did you decide I'm going to write a book and did you not tell anyone up first? Did you tell people? And how's the process been? Hmm. Like, how do you even start that? Uh, well, I do. Jur I journaled for a long time. You said and that, so yeah. I, yeah. So I started journaling. And when we were in the rehab hospital, Holland Bloorview Kids Rehab Hospital in Toronto, I was living there with Dominic. And when he would nap, I would continue to write more about the experience, what I was going through, my emotions, thinking that this would be like enough of me therapying myself, you know? Uh, and then when I couldn't find a book there for me to read, and I realized it didn't exist. And I was talking to other parents that were in the hospital. I spoke with Paul and we did two things that at that time we decided we're going to do a fundraiser for his first birthday 
for sick kids and, and Blurview. And the second thing was, I don't know why this happened. I hate that this happened. And if I can use it to help other people, then I'm going to. Is that okay? Because this is divulging personal information, right? And I wanted yeah, to have permission yeah. and all of that. And and God bless him. My husband was like, yes, like you need to do this. I, I used to think I would write a book about my grandmother, to be honest. And then I never felt compelled to write it. My grandmother's a very interesting person. I'm her namesake. And I always said I would do it. And Paul bought me this journal when we first started dating. And he said, I want you to write that book. He said, you were going to write. And I went, okay, never did. And then this flowed and it took four years to write it, but wow. it was um, because I was living it, right? It didn't feel complete. I, I thought I was done. And then 2020 happened and I went, nope, we're still going. So now it's, now it's done. And uh, yeah, and, and we're just editing and it's a lot of work. I, I didn't realize how much goes into the process. I mean, I'm not a writer by nature other than case notes, right? So this is a whole new ball game, but it's exciting. It's really exciting. Okay. And so, and you, you're such an interesting person and you're doing so many things. So yeah. how are you uh, a mother of two with this business you, you've launched and you're finding time to write a book? Like what's your time management strategy here? <laughs> I have, I'm laughing because it's not great. No, I, okay. The truth is I get up at five o'clock in the morning. And from five to seven, I have uninterrupted work time. My husband leaves for work at 510. He pours his coffee to go. I pour my coffee and sit at the table and I get probably my most productive work done in the first two hours of the day. So whether it's, you know, operations manual for the business or posting a job or editing the book, I try to do that the first two hours because once the kids are up, if they're home that day, not a heck of a lot's going to get done. And I'm very, very grateful that I have uh, support of family. So like my husband's very supportive. My in-laws, my parents all provide childcare for us when the kids aren't in school, if we need it. And I, I make a very conscious effort to work part-time because I, I, well, I would say part-time between all the jobs, it's full-time, but because of that, I can get creative with where the hours are so that I can be there for the kids as much as possible. And then just you know, maybe one night a week I work late and then I don't work on another day so I can do drop off and pick up and work during the school day, things like that. So, but I stopped trying to multitask was the other thing. Oh. I have to time block or it's not, it, it gets a little overwhelming. And do you find that you can get to bed the night before at a decent time to get up at five or no, are you not, not always. always? I am an early, uh, like early to go to bed person like by 10 o'clock, I need, I usually should be asleep, but usually it's between 10 and 11. But if it's after 11, that 5am is not happening. And what about you in terms of, you know, you went through this and first of all, you could have just curled up in the corner and said, why the hell is this happening to me? Like, I did right? that for a, for a portion of time. Like I'm sure you <laughs> thought it wasn't fair. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not fair. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, and you, you, you mentioned anxiety and so what do you do to kind of keep all of that at bay and keep your energy level up and in good? Like, what do you do from a mental health standpoint? I'm always interested in people, how they keep themselves mentally healthy. Uh, for me, movement is medicine. So I like spin quite a bit, I go for runs if the weather's nice, nothing. I'm not super athletic, but I, movement is medicine. So getting a good sweat is really important for me. And making sure that just being in tune with myself and recognizing like there's time, there's times when I need to be by myself. Like I'm a, I'm an extrovert. Typically I, I like being around people. I like talking to people, but I also know that sometimes I just need to stop and fill up my cup. And that might look like 
journaling or reading or going for a walk by the lake. Uh, I find water extremely therapeutic. So I'm lucky. I live maybe 10 minutes from the lake. So I'll go drive down there. Um, those types of things. I don't know if that answers the question, but mostly no, movement. Totally movement does. is yeah, movement is my number one. Move, movement's the same for me. Yeah. And if, if any of the clips go out, you saw at the beginning, I was looked a little sweaty because I had just worked out because I was like, man, it's been a long day and yeah. I want the proper energy to bring to, to, to the kindness of you sharing your story. And so, you know, I appreciate that. I have three questions that I, that I like to end off the episodes with, sure. and I, they're just quick hits. You know, you get up at five o'clock every morning and your life has definitely changed Jennifer from where you were maybe 10 years ago. Yeah. What gets you up every morning to drive, to build this business and to write this book, the service of others. Knowing that, yeah, knowing that I can have an opportunity to help people. I love that. What what advice would you give back to yourself at, at, let's say McMaster when you were 20? Oh my gosh. So much. It's not that important. Yeah. Like it really doesn't matter. Think about this and go how in five days from now, five months from now, five years from now, how much will this problem really matter to me? And I guarantee you it's not. So you don't need to worry about it now. And stop being so hard on yourself. I was so hard on myself. Well, that leads into the next one. The last one there was, was is there anything from your 20s? Because a lot of people who listen to this podcast, they're like 20s, early 30s. Is there <laughs> anything you really regret and you learn now and you're like, you know, I have a lesson from that. Maybe it was you were being hard on yourself. I, know I was being was- hard. You know what? Actually, even my 20s to 30s is I should have been more selective about who I gave my energy to. So in terms of friendships, I have less friendships in my thirties than I did in my twenties, but they're way deeper, way more authentic. And they bring so much joy into my life. And I'm so grateful for that. I probably would have started that sooner. That's such, such amazing advice. Um, Where can people find you, get in touch with you, what you're doing from work and where can people find the book or follow along so they know when it launches? Yeah. So I just started the handle making it to Monday on Instagram. They can find me there. My work is www.nourishedsoultherapy.com. And we provide service to anyone in Ontario through virtual modalities. So anyone looking for therapy support uh, above the age of 10. So we work with young people as well. And the book will be available like Indigo chapters online though, and uh, Amazon as well. And then pre-order, I think starts in January. I don't know the exact date, but yeah, there'll be more information coming out on Instagram. Once I know, once I know more, I'll share more. (laughs) Well, and I'm a huge fan of the title. It's, it's incredible. And, and thank you for giving myself and the listener your energy today and for sharing your story. I know that's, that's not always an easy thing to think about. Do I want to share private details or not, but you really are helping other people. Um, And I know this is the first time I think you've done a podcast you have an incredible story and you're going to help a lot and I believe you're going to have many 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 more of these so thanks for making this your first time being on and uh, I hope to see you soon thanks so much for having me it's been so fun what did you take away from our chat today I'd love to know let me know on Instagram at it's not a straight line or connect with me on LinkedIn if this episode was helpful would you mind leaving me a review on whatever podcast app you use I'd really appreciate it. You can always go back to previous episodes to hear more insightful conversations to help you build your own unique life. Thanks for listening to It's Not a Straight Line. Until next time.